Welcome to Season 3, Episode 24 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Richard Millward. Richard is a writer. His wonderful new novel, Man Eating Typewriter, is out now from White Rabbit. Thanks for joining me, Richard. Thanks a lot for having me, Ben. How's life over in London? Yeah, it's good. The uh, The book is officially out tomorrow, which is the 16th of March. So it's been yeah, it's been a nice week. We had the, the book launch at our spiritual home, The Social, in London on Monday. David Keenan and um, DBC Pierre were, were there as well. I know you've You've interviewed both of them as well. Yeah, brilliant. I was was looking at the photos of of the launch. It looked amazing. Obviously, yeah, yeah. So that was special. But um, yeah, so I've got a few readings on at the at the moment. Yeah, just starting to do the publicity. But it's yeah, it's it's had like such good response so far. Mm. Had like some good great reviews, and it's all it's all looking good. Yeah. Well, congratulations on it because I feel like it's not just this one book you're releasing because White Rabbit are releasing all four of your books. Yeah. Yeah, so I moved over from, well, my, my editor, Lee Braxton, he, he originally published me at Faber, Faber and Faber, but in the last few years he's set up his own imprint, White Rabbit. But it's brilliant that, so he took, um, he took on Manning in Typewriter, but it's brilliant that they've invested in me and decided to reissue all the, my three previous novels. So, yeah, so it's quite a, yeah, quite a quite a re-arrival into the... Yeah, definitely. And the, the editions that they've put out, they look amazing. I haven't got my hard copy yet of Manning Typewriter, but the, the beautiful way they've produced these books just looks unbelievable. Yeah, it's nice. It's um, we sort of based the Manning Typewriter cover on the old sort of like French paperbacks, like the Olympia, Olympia Press yeah, and um, like Gallimard. Especially like the Olympia Press, because a lot of those novels are some of my favourite novels, like Naked Lunch they did and Lolita. This was when mm. these books were basically banned in Britain, but they existed in Paris. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's got that kind of like nice, like clean template to mm. it. Yeah, it's nice to have the reissues all all kind of in keeping with that style. So look, yeah, they look special. Yeah, they look beautiful. You wrote your first book, Apples. Uh, and it came out when you were 22 in 2007. You've written three novels since then. Uh, do you want to tell us about your background and how you got into writing? Yeah, I mean, it's quite it's quite unique for publishing. I started, well, I discovered um, like Irving Welsh's Trainspotting. I read that when I was 11, basically. Wow. Like Trainspotting, <laughs> the film had just come out. Uh, luckily, my mother was quite all right with me picking up a copy of it. Um, I just started writing just on the on the back of reading Train Spotting and Alan Warner's Marvin Callar. And there was an anthology called Children of Albion Rovers that was full of these really brilliant Scottish writers at the time. And so I just started sending out my sort of short, very juvenile stories to, to publishers unsolicited. And um sent them to a publisher called Canagate. And within Weeks, I got a got a letter back that said, "There's no way you're 12, basically." <laughs> so I'm, um, yeah. I think they, obviously their ears pricked up because I was so young, and they said, "Keep in touch." Like they didn't obviously publish anything, but they just yeah encouraged me and said, "Yeah, keep keep going, keep going." And um, when I was 16, I got first got in touch with Lee Braxton, who's now my my editor. And again, the thing that's the thing that I sent him, he didn't publish it, but again, just said. You know, keep in touch, and then, yeah, I wrote apples when I was nineteen, and so I sent that sent that to to Lee and Canagate again, and within a month, Lee had got in touch and wanted to meet me and talk about potentially putting it out. So it's just come from come from there. Lee. Wow, that's amazing. That is just amazing. Yeah, with your new book, Manning Typewriter, we'll talk about it in a minute. But I know it took you quite a long time to write. Um, how long did it take you to to get from your previous book to this one? Yeah, it's been um, my last book came out in twenty twelve, 
So it's been an 11 year gap. But this book, it took probably took like seven years altogether to write. Uh, I had the idea for it about 10 years ago after reading Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter, which is, he was the prosecuting lawyer that brought down Charles Manson and his family. And it's just such an incredible book. It's uh, his main challenge was to prove Charles Manson's motives, basically, which people are probably aware were like incredibly bizarre, um, including like misreadings of the Book of Revelation and misreadings of the Beatles White Album, for instance. Um, so the way that book unfolds, it's as if the because it sort of what it's it sort of unfolds in chronological order, like in real time almost, and the story just gets more and more sinister and more and more strange. So I felt like I just wanted to almost come up with a like a fictional version of it. Uh, but yeah, so I had the idea, but I didn't I didn't quite feel I was ready to write it even. I didn't feel like I was quite talented enough to to really dive in because I was really happy with the idea, but I wanted to do to do it justice, basically. So I had a few false starts with other books, basically. One of which was going to be a almost like a strange sort of dystopian novel, but written in a completely invented slang, basically. And as I, as I tried to piece together that slang, I think because the possibilities were endless, I just struggled coming up with, you know, like a completely brand new lingo. Mm. But when I, when I started managing typewriter, which basically the story is um, like a, an unhinged individual gets in touch with a, a publisher towards the end of the 1960s and says he's going to commit a fantastic crime in 276 days. And if they're interested, they'll send them piece by piece his, his memoirs as he, as he types them out so they can publish the memoirs immediately as news breaks of his crime. And so when I started writing that, I mean, when I, when I came up with Novak's, which is the, the main character, his his memoirs in the book, I thought I could use this idea of like using a strange slang for his for his voice. And um yeah, so it's all written in Polari, which is it was like a gay underground slang in the 1960s and 50s, which I'd when I've been reading, I mean I read quite a lot of books on like the 60s counterculture anyway. And Polari is something that would just keep coming up occasionally. Um and again, as a writer, you just kind of sponge up all this potentially useful or useless information. So Polari had been sort of jangling around my brain for a, for a little while. And it just seemed the perfect slang to, to write these memoirs in, as it is the sort of the ultimate non-conformist lingo, really. And, and Novak himself considers himself the, the ultimate non-conformist. Yes, he is a complete non-conformist. Do you want to tell us a bit more about Raymond Novak and also about the dodgy publisher that he is sending his work to? Because they receive these little uh, things from him and the publisher we know is a, he's pretty dodgy. He's just loving it. He's loving looking at these little pieces from Novak um, and he's just wanting that success when the book comes out. And one of the great things you do with this book is you tell a narrative not only through Novak's work and his chapters in the book and his memoir, I suppose, but also through the fact that we're getting these beautiful little footnotes that kind of increase throughout the book um, from this publisher, Merritt, who um, pretty much drives the narrative even more as the story goes on. But do you want to give, tell us a bit more about Raymond Novak and also about your dodgy publisher? Yeah, certainly. Um, so that if I start with the publisher, it's um, a fictional publisher called Glass Eye Press. It's based in Fitzrovia in in the 60s. And they're, they're basically just a, a struggling publisher of very poor pulp fiction. There's titles like The Lonesome Abortionist, there's The Nuremberg Nymphos, there's Fucking by Candlelight. It's all just basically dross mostly just sort of written pseudonymously by uh, Merritt himself as well. Mm. But he's just really, I guess, when the book starts, he's kind of at the end of his tether. The The publisher is struggling financially. They've got very few readers. Most of the people that read their books just send them hate mail and 
complaints in the post, basically, that they have to deal with constantly. And his marriage is failing. He's got various other other problems. And so when this like completely random letter turns up at his on his doorstep one day from this Raymond Novak character. Because I think as well, it's it's set in or it begins in the nineteen in nineteen sixty nine, when the Manson murders of, are kind of he says they're branded on everyone's brains at the time. So when Novak sort of threatens this, this fantabulosa crime as he calls it, merits his prick up. He thinks perhaps you know this could be like a real commercial success. But obviously Merritt gets kind of sucked down on this, this hall of, you know, it's like his his moral compass uh, just kind of breaks, I guess, basically, because uh, in terms of commercial potential, he almost wants the crime to be as, as horrific as possible because mm. he thinks the worse it'll be, potentially the better the book will sell. But... um. Yeah, so he so he agrees to to publish Novak's memoirs, and then Novak begins to send him piece by piece his, his memoirs. But and it begins. I mean, the, the memoirs are basically like a full a full life history of Novak. So it begins even with his conception. Uh, and Novak's upbringing is really quite unique in that his mother. Um, he, he claims, I mean, again, like he's, he's a very unreliable narrator and he, he, but he claims that his mother was a, a sort of showgirl in Paris or like a, a sort of surrealist muse in a way. Mm. And she, she brought Novak up almost like outside. Well, she, she homeschools him basically by reading him the surrealists and Georges Bataille and kind of branding his eyes with surrealist paintings. He, she almost uh, kind of brings him up outside what she sort of perceives of, as uh, the, well, like all, just outside normal society, basically outside normal society, uh, in sort of scruple-proof conditions. She says. So Novak has this really like weird upbringing, and he goes on to try and live what he calls the liberated lavi. It's almost his attempt to to live a completely free life, basically. Um, but that quickly inevitably descends into crime and violence and perversion, basically. His upbringing is very strange, and we find out quite a lot about him along the way, and that's through his own memoir, but also through the footnotes. But we also find out that he's quite a, I guess he's born with some kind of deformity to his face, and he's not a very attractive person. And so he becomes almost like a master of disguise and that kind of, I guess, uh, propels the narrative on forward as well. Do you want to tell us about some of his disguises and his interest in fashion? Yeah, I mean, the whole, I'd say there's probably like two main themes of the novel and one is freedom, total liberation, and the other is mistaken identity. And so, yeah, Novak has this, yeah, sort of deformity. But... um. Yeah, when he when he sort of moves into the sixties, he, he basically he tries to set up a what he calls a sort of super communist cult or fashion boutique in Fitzrovia in the nineteen nineteen sixties. And yeah, becomes a sort of master of disguise in a sense. Um some of his costumes get more and more outlandish as it goes along, almost in a way like inspired by sort of like Lee Bowery in a sense, mm. or um or even just like the sort of dadaist like costumes that they would wear. But he yeah, he dresses as kind of like a at one point as like a sort of grotesque Marie Antoinette with the, the post office tower hairstyle, strangely, or like a sort of weird, weird jockey, or he's at one point dressed as a contraceptive dial pack. Mm. So lots of like very like bizarre, bizarre costumes. But um yeah, and again, he's just like a very slippery character. I mean, like Merritt himself, the, the director of the publisher, almost seems to be living a double life. Or like even the characters at the at the publisher quite often seem to be leading a double life. And, and Novak himself is very much like a slippery character, which obviously relates as well to his 
this sort of shape-shifting series of disguises that he wears throughout. So there's a lot of like question marks over who exactly these these people are as the story moves along. Yeah, there are so many question marks in this book, and we are just constantly asking questions as to what is happening with Novak and what's happening with Merritt and the other staff at his little publishing house. And the the most amazing thing I think about this book is the fact that we are constantly asking questions right up to the end. And this book has an amazing climax because we are asking questions to the literal end of this book. And even afterwards, because there's there's a resolution, but then there are still many questions. But I want to ask you about, I guess, some of the influences for this book, because it kind of sent me in lots of dis- different directions. Like, as you say, the Surrealists are there, the Helter Skelter stuff is there. Um, things like Clockwork Orange are there. Hellfire is something that I think comes up quite a bit because of the the nature of the the different narrative strands and the footnotes, especially towards the end, creating like the the main drive of the narrative. And also, you haven't just decided to have one dodgy narr- narrator. You've decided to have like multiple dodgy na- narrators in this book. Do you want to tell us more about, I guess, that influence in the book and also that, I guess, that misdirection sometimes and that idea of having these multiple unreliable narrators? Yeah, definitely. Um, so when I when I discovered Helter Skelter, at the same time I did discover Vladimir Novikov. So Lolita and Pale Fire were the two, two big influences on the book. And simultaneously I discovered the films of David Lynch as well. I sort of see parallels between Nabokov and Lynch in a way. It's almost like the, the style of their, their work isn't too similar, but their characters do seem very slippery very like there's a lot of sort of so much strange symbolism in their in their work. It's almost as if they've planted a lot of like secret information that you don't you don't need to decipher it to enjoy the books or to to get a lot out of the books. But you do feel as if everything is there for a reason. And there's um there's so much to unpick or there's so much ambiguity there. Uh so I found that like really inspiring. So the the novel itself is I, I do see it as just one big puzzle basically, mm. um, yeah, almost like the first puzzle that the the reader has to crack is just deciphering Novak's Polari, mm. but then there's, <laughs> there's like so much of a such a bigger overall puzzle in that um, yeah it's almost trying to trying to really work out who this Novak character is and what are his true motives. And I think even, you know, I don't want to give too much away, obviously, but I think, yeah, again, at the, after the climax, you're still left with this idea of, you know, what, maybe it's the question why is still mm-hmm. hanging over the reader, but all the all the information is in there. I do have quite a set, um, yeah, a set answer for mm-hmm. everything in the book, and it is all in there. But it's obviously completely open to interpretation as well. And I do sort of feel, I sort of wonder, I mean, I'll basically just keep a lot of the secret stuff to myself for a long, long time and just see how it, see what happens, you know, see see what the reader makes of it. Yeah. But I do feel like, again, I mean, what, what Nabokov said was reading is rereading. And again, like all, all the books that I love, and especially like Lolita and Pale Fire, I feel like every time I read those books, you just discover more and more about them. And you uncover little hidden allusions to other things, or you see, you cut, you sort of see the, yeah, you you gain more answers to the puzzle almost. Mm. Um, yeah, so I feel like you know, Manatee Typewriter is the sort of book that you could could reread in a year's time, or five years' time, or ten years, and and kind of keep uncovering more and more things about it. Yeah, the brilliant thing is that you've got these clues on a surface level, like even to the to the point where. There's sections in the footnote, there's sections in the manuscript that Novak sends in that have um, bold typesetting on certain letters. And as a reader, like when I was reading it live, I was going, okay, so I've got to, I've got to remember those letters because I know he's trying to tell me something here. And then you kind of solve those things within the footnotes, but then often they're kind of a red herring as well. So you're kind of like every single puzzle leads you to a bigger puzzle, which I think is just such an amazing thing for a reader because you are constantly questioning things. And then you also have this idea of this crime in the background. 
And as you edge towards the end of the book, you're, you know, this crime is going to happen. You know, it's going to happen. And you're just wondering when that shoe will drop. But then the footnotes, they have a different chronological order to the actual chapters because sometimes the footnotes are quite ahead of what's happening in the chapters that Novak's sending in. So you have this kind of double edged anticipation for the reader, which is like, for me, it was just thrilling to read. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Because um, I do feel with the sort of the footnotes as well, it, like you like you mentioned earlier, they do kind of, by the end of the novel, they've basically taken over and swallowed mm. Novak's memoirs, basically. But yeah, the, the footnotes begin, I guess, almost as a kind of glossary of Polari. It's almost there just to kind of quite casually help the reader out with mm. certain words because there is a couple of Polari speakers in the in the publisher. And then, yeah, it's almost as as the book goes along, the publisher kind of becomes more involved with Novak's plot. And so that's when they sort of do begin to kind of just get like sucked into uh, sucked into his, his plot. And again, it's almost like the, yeah, the boundary between sort of like fiction and reality starts to, starts to shift a bit. But yeah, so it's, but it did. It, I mean, this is why the book's taken so long to write, really, because I, I really just wanted to do it absolute justice and just make sure all these puzzles worked. And like you say, I just wanted to keep kind of like stacking puzzles on top of puzzles, basically. <laughs> and even like towards the end, I mean, I feel even like sort of from maybe even like 15 pages from the end, you, you might have a grasp of what has happened, but then it gets kind of turned on its head mm. again. So it's constantly like twisted. It's constantly sort of writhing in front of you, basically twisting and turning. Yeah. Um, yes, it is a book that like I do not want to give anything away for anybody. And if there are any spoilers out there, you know, I, I really urge you to stay away from them because this kind of book that the thrill of reading it is, it's kind of unparalleled in books that I've read recently because it does keep you enthralled and entertained the whole way through. It's a book that the plot is... Like I rarely say this about plot-driven books because normally they're a bit crappy, but in this case, the the plot and the mystery and the characterization is just so well done that yeah, as a reader, I just burned through this, especially the last two three hundred pages. Yeah, no, thanks so much. I um I do agree as well. I feel like plot isn't really necessary in a book. You know, I don't I don't um with my previous three books, like plot isn't too too important really but um with this one i think just when i had that initial idea that it was going to be almost because the book works as a kind of countdown to the crime basically mm. well because novak's sending them it's like he's literally sending them the chapters through the post and so when they receive the chapter it's a countdown towards this this crime that's going to happen in 276 days and so yeah i just that it was almost asking for it to be like a quite a tightly strangely plotted beast really it mm. kind of almost like the plot took care of itself in a way yeah but you have that instant suspense i guess because there's this countdown towards crime that especially because the reader doesn't know what it's going to be as well yeah that's right so it's not, not it's almost not i mean i don't know it's not it's, it's not quite like a who who done it it's almost like a what <laughs> what's but gonna what happen <laughs> like yeah. A, yeah exactly yeah but then it also turns into a kind of sort of hallucinogenic who done it as well by the by the yeah. end of it, so we've got, got everything. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to ask you a bit more about Polari because, as I said to you before, I'd never heard of it before. David Keenan said to me that this book is written in Polari and um, I had to go look it up. And in this book, you you kind of almost teach the reader Polari within the book, which is so cool. But I wanted to ask you, how did you discover Polari? And in terms of the words that you've now adopted because i know i have what are some of your favorite polari kind of words yeah um so it, polari was just something that kept coming up when i was reading a lot of books on 60s counterculture yeah it was something that i just sort of started away um it's a yeah it's brilliant it's like i say it's like the ultimate non-conformist lingo um it was used by gay men in sort of like the theater district of of London, but as well in the Merchant Navy during the, say like the 40s, 50s and 60s when homosexuality was 
outlawed in in Britain at the time. So it was this very like clandestine slang that um I mean what I love about Polari is it it was used almost as as a defense as well as a weapon at the time. And that it was a defense in that you could slip a word of Polari into a conversation with a man to almost like feel out potentially if he was gay too. Or you could use it as a weapon in that, you know, humans love to sort of badmouth each other. And you can slip a little word of Polari into a conversation and sort of just to slag off some sort of like straight or narrow-minded person, not even just behind their back, you could do it kind of when they're, they're almost sat sat next to you in a way. To, but I feel like Novak himself uses Polari mainly as a weapon, I guess, in the in the book, in that I mean Polari is is a real combination of different sort of European lingos, really. It's got a lot of Italian in it, quite a lot of Yiddish, like sort of bastardized French. Um again, because it was spoken by stewards in the merchant navy, they would travel from part to part, and I guess it may be developed by them picking up certain certain words here and there, or it's just like a real strange melting pot of a lot of, of Euro lingos. Um, but it's got this brilliant, quite like humorous melody to it, I guess. Mm. It's quite like sort of sardonic, quite sing-song. Um, and I think when when Novak uses Polari, it's almost because he, he sort of detests modern society, basically. But I think because he's describing it and quite often slagging it off, in Polari, it almost heightens the ridiculousness of the world that he's railing against in a way. It's almost as if the yeah, the the strangeness of Polari kind of makes the the world seem even stranger somehow. Mm. Um yeah, and in terms of I mean again, the what well like um in terms of researching Polari, uh, a guy called Paul Baker has written a lot of brilliant books about the history and usage of Polari. And it really helped when I when I realised or when I discovered that in the Merchant Navy especially, Polari was a lot more complex and a bit more freeform. So even speakers could just add words as as to their whims, basically. There was no there's no hard and fast rules of Polari. There's no like a glossary of it doesn't really exist. Um and so that gave me license to add add my own words basically. And because Novak, he believes he's French, despite having no real evidence <laughs> for this whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so when there's sometimes there would just be a bit of a bit of a lack in terms of certain Polari words. Like for instance, the one of the famous like car Polari words would be eek, which is it just means face, basically. It's yeah. uh, back slang, it's face backwards, it's ekaf. But there was no real word for like head or brain, which are useful words to have. So I would always go to sort of French would be always my go-to place. And I would tend to sort of bastardize French to add, add those words. So head becomes tet. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, brain is servo. Uh so it's so Novak's Polari. It's it's by no means like a watertight time capsule of Polari as it was spoken. It's something much more like freer and wilder than that, I guess. Mm. But yeah, in terms of the, yeah, I mean, like it would be such a compliment if people adopted the odd Polari word and began began spouting it. I do I quite like even just eagerly mm. as a kind of catch-all term for some sort of oppressive authority figure is quite good. Um, I do love, I mean, it's not Polari, but Novak's favourite slogan that he's come up with is lubricate reality with dreams. Mm. Quite like that to take off, perhaps, or I'll I'll put it on my gravestone, perhaps. But so uh, <laughs> get some t-shirts. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see how it kind of how people take to it. People have said they almost start dreaming in Polari while they're yeah. while they're reading the, the novel. It's so cool because I think initially when. I heard about the idea that it was in Polari. I thought it would be hard to pick up and I thought it would kind of make make the reading experience difficult. And I'd say for like the first maybe page, I was like, okay, I need to like look up a bit of Polari glossary. But 
by page two, <laughs> you're already in the mode of it, and you already understand most of the words that he that he uses. And um, like it's it's kind of it's very intuitive, like the way you've written it and the way that I guess the Polari in the book works. So you really almost don't need to even bother about um, learning it because you just do like reading it and. I think that's really, really cool. Having a bit of Yiddish helps, but um, yeah, definitely like a, a, the kind of thing where you can just slip into it and it doesn't take a huge amount of effort at all. Yeah, definitely. Because obviously, I'm, and again, this is another thing that I took a lot of care of that I mm. wanted to, I mean, this is almost true of all my books. Like I want to push them, like make them as experimental as possible, but also just make sure they're absolutely readable at the same time. Um, but I think with, with Polari, especially the Polari in the book, um, I think, again, for the reader, you can just tell what the words mean because of the context that they're, that they're yeah. said in. Um, yeah, I guess it's... Um, I mean, again, yeah, the publisher starts out trying to kind of help you out with odd yeah. little phrases, but I think I sort of agree. I, I almost think that side of it is not completely necessary even as well, but it's just there as like... It's almost as if they just feel obliged to kind of help out the reader, but it's, I do think once you get sort of sucked in, it it all comes together. I sort of think as well the uh, the title itself, Man Eating Typewriter, it's almost giving the reader advice. I think you know yeah. just surrender yourself to it and mm. let yourself be kind of swallowed up by it for best results. I think. Yeah, I think one of the things I really enjoyed as well is the fact that by the end of the book, even the footnotes are using quite a lot of Polari in them because, you know, we know the reader has obviously read the whole lot. But, yeah, even the footnotes uh, from Merit are basically in Polari a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly. It's almost as if it's sort of contagious, I think, mm, yeah. like they've been sort of infected by Novak's <laughs> virus because yeah. there's little, tiny little references as well that you can see that the publisher have started eating French foods and things mm. and, it's almost as if like his because he's just such like an advocate of French culture. Um, it's almost as if you can just see it's kind of bled into into their their office and their their consciousnesses for yeah. for good or bad in many yeah. as it tends. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> One of the really cool things about this book is as it goes along, it becomes almost this spy novel, like this detective spy novel, and the characters kind of shift from continent to continent and um and there is kind of a bit of a, a search for Novak that goes on but in terms of that stuff was that I guess a conscious thing when you were plotting out this novel to almost deliver it in a in a way that was a detective or spy novel I think I mean not it wasn't conscious um specifically but I think again going back to Helter Skelter Vincent Bugliosi it was his, like he almost in that book becomes like a private detective himself because it was almost, he, he took it upon himself to really, you know, interview any witnesses he could find and kind of un unearth as much information as he could find about Manson. Um, so, it yeah, so it definitely has that, that aspect to it. I think, uh, yeah, again, without giving too much away, the characters do end up in, in Tangier, uh, which at the time was, I mean, again, William Burroughs calls it the interzone. In the 60s, it was quite a sort of lawless place. Um, and it's, yeah, the, the Medina itself is a real labyrinth as well. Mm. So they kind of find themselves in this very, very strange environment, which, while well, they're almost kind of doing their detective work, it almost is, it's just wrong footing them. Mm. Every, every turn of the way, basically. So I think, yeah, it's it's certainly like a very, very unconventional detective uh, section, that part. Yeah. Almost as if they're kind of like tunnelling through their own paranoia rather than sort of actually getting any closer to the, to the, to the prey. Yeah. I think one of the things about this book is, and I don't think this book is directly, and obviously this program you know obviously we have a focus on Pinchonian kind of related topics but I think there's a lot of elements in this book that that have Thomas Pinchon like elements within them especially you know we've got a part that 
where uh, Novak is on a military ship and we've got this element of them, you know, being in Tangier and places like that. And there's this whole element of paranoia that runs through the text. And of course, we've got like the Manson murders and things like that that are in the background. So I think that they're, they're I guess, people who are listening to this, I think there is a very pinch-on element as well that I found really enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Pynchon is someone that I've just discovered quite recently, really. I did read The Crying of Lot 49 mm. a long, long time ago, but only just recently read Inherent Vice. Yeah. Um, I definitely need to read more because I feel like, again, coupled with Nabokov, I can feel like like both their novels are just filled with this sort of, like, yeah, all these sort of like strange secret elements, basically. Because in the, yeah, in Manning Typewriter, the, like you said before as well, there's a lot of red herrings there. Or some things don't seem relevant, but mm. in fact, they do have a lot of um, importance. There's this sort of, because with Pynchon, I know that he puts a lot of sort of like shadowy sort of, yeah, there's a lot of like conspiracy theories again in there and there's a lot of sort of like shadowy organizations that you just can't quite put your finger on there's in manning typewriter there's a sort of strange character called like dilada hand that gets mentioned but almost seems potentially as you know is it a red herring or is it something significant you know i do quite like giving the reader a lot of threads and it just depends which one you want to kind of pull and follow mm. Because um, even in your brain, you can make. I love the idea that you can kind of make connections between certain things, or sometimes you, you're led down a, a, a blind alley, something. Yeah. But yeah, Pinchin is someone I definitely want to to read more of. Certainly, I feel like again with Pinchin, you could just keep rereading and rereading his novels mm-hmm. as well, and just unearth much much more stuff. Yes, I think you'll find quite a lot um, of similarities. Uh, in terms of tone, I think with your book, especially in V and Gravity's Rainbow, and also Inherent Vice, probably to a lesser extent, but I think that idea of like that paranoia and that um, real, I guess, shaky uh, element of reality, I think that comes up, which I think is really prominent in your work, I think will come up there really nicely for you. Yeah, nice. Because I do, I mean, I feel like in a way, like my, my books really are inspired by my own paranoia, basically. Yeah. I do feel like I, you know, I don't like, I wouldn't say I suffer from anxiety, but I feel like I do put a lot of my fears into my work, but I just kind of like, basically the whole point is to making these fears creative, basically mm. kind of turning these fears into something, something else. So there's like, like obviously a lot of hideousness in the, in the book, but um, yeah, in a way, like, I mean, I don't want to sort of like repel the reader. I kind of, you almost want to like seduce them with things that they, they wouldn't expect to be seduced by. So Novak is really like a, a sort of archetypal paranoiac. We should move on, but I want to ask you, after working on something of like this for 11 years, do you move on to something like a novel next or what do you move on to after this? Well, I've got a, got a couple of ideas for potential novels, but I want to just let them marinate for a little while in my brain. Um, and again, I'm just full, like at the moment, I'm just like fully... Um, focused on just trying to get Manning Typewriter out there. But in terms of like my next my next move, I've got about like half a maybe half a collections worth of short stories, and I want to really sort of keep keep going with that. It's almost like a nice tonic in a way to the complexity of Manning Typewriter. It's quite nice now to just focus on like much shorter fiction. But I'd love it if, um, I mean, the the aim is going to be for each short story to almost feel like feel like a miniature novel in a way. I want it to be like really varied, really experimental, almost like each each story just being like so different from the last. So you're really led along this kind of, yeah, almost like batted from one sort of like strange location to another, basically. Mm. Very cool. Okay. Looking forward to that. Let's talk about some of your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, um, in the mid-1990s, the Scottish writers like Alan Warner and Irvin Welsh were the initial influences, really. Train Spotting and Marvin Callar were the 
were the two books that really inspired me to to write. I just realised as well that being because I was eleven when I when I read them, it just made me realise that you could write whatever you wanted. Mm. Basically, you could write about just things that were on on your doorstep, basically, and write it in. I mean, all those Scottish writers were so experimental, really. Writers like Janice Galloway and Laura Hurd, um, like James Meek. Yeah, it just made, made me realise you can experiment so much with style and structure as well as subject matter. Um, and then maybe like more towards like the late 1990s and into the 2000s, I discovered a lot more like experimental American writers. I really love Richard Browskin. Yeah. Um, I sort of love that he's just so unique, really. There's no one no one else like him. I, sort of, I love that his, his novels almost feel like little private jokes to himself, in a way. Um, you feel like he just really was trying to entertain himself and then just probably trusting that if anyone else had his sort of slightly strange, skewed taste as well, they would love his love his books. So and especially all the all the strange, brilliant similes that he uses. It's just really, really inspiring. Um, and then, yeah, discovered like the beat writers, which is quite an obvious one, I guess, but especially like Kerouac's spontaneous prose. Uh, I feel like with, with my first two published novels, Apples and Ten Story Love Song, the first draft of those novels is pretty similar to what was eventually published. So when I was younger, it's as if I, like, I really was like writing in very like spontaneous way. And so something like On the Road or like the Dharma Bombs really appealed as well because it's it's almost just that that pure energy that you get in that getting those novels of Kerouac's. Um whereas now obviously with, with Man Eating Typewriter, it kind of came out it's it's all like an improvisation in a way, but obviously in terms of the complexity of the novel, I really my approach is different now, where I really do try and like sort of twist the twist what I've got into like a really satisfying structure and add all these like secret secret elements and stuff um yeah so again like hunter s thompson's big big influence like naked lunch was big influence just in terms of pure like hallucinogenic nightmare scenarios basically um and then in the like in the mid 2000s i really discovered surrealism my art tutor at art college kathy kabicki she introduced me to to a lot of like surrealist fiction, because I obviously knew the knew the artwork, you know, like everyone's seen Dali. Um, but in terms, there's such like a huge wealth of surrealist literature. Um, so I've discovered like Andre Breton's Nadia. Mm. He, he has his famous quote in there, uh, beauty will be convulsive or it will not be at all. And I really, I mean, it took me a while to, to work out what he meant by beauty will be convulsive. Um, sort of realise now that it, it just means like having an actual like visceral response to to artwork or to literature. Um, almost trying to, I guess, I guess with literature, I feel like when you, you know, a reader can just be content, quite contentedly, on cruise control, just kind of gliding through the the paragraphs. But in my own work, I just want to kind of like break the the reader out of that as much as possible whether that's with like a startling turn of phrase or some sort of like the, the rhythm of the the sentence or even just some sort of like bizarre, quite like unexpected twist or something. So that, so um, yeah, Andrew Breton is really, really big influence. Um, and then probably coming up more to, to the present day, definitely, like I mentioned before, like Nabokov is huge influence. Like we mentioned, Pynchon is, is starting to like make his presence felt, but um, yeah, I mean, I'd say those those were like the big the big gateway books. It was funny because when I was reading this book uh, with the Polaria as well, I felt like it was almost one of those Olipo experiments in a in a kind of way, because um, I guess restricting yourself to to some of this language I thought was really interesting, but yeah, it's completely different to that kind of thing as well. Yeah, I think I, I do like a lipo. It's um, yeah, I feel, and I feel like with with all my books as well, it's uh, I almost quite like imposing a sort of restriction on myself, almost as a springboard to be more creative in a way. So with um, 
Silver Ten Story Love Song, that novel is all just one streaming paragraph. It's just one unbroken paragraph, basically. And so when you open the book, you literally see blocks of text and it's set in the in a block of flats. So the the style of it, the structure of it represents the block of flats that it's mm. set in. Um and with like Kimberly's Cattle of Punishment, that had six different endings to it. Basically. So I quite yeah, I like having some sort of restriction. Almost it's like trying to fight your way out of a straight jacket almost. <laughs> but, but it makes you, you know, you have to be creative to, to kind of get you to work your way out. Yeah. Do you in that case, do you start from the restriction or do you start from an idea? I think I start with a restriction. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So again with yeah, because again with with Manning and Typewriter, so it had this structure where it's gonna be the 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 Polari memoirs and the footnotes. So I had to obviously that was a I guess a restriction in itself that you just had to make it make each earn its place, I guess. Mm. But yeah, again with the Polari, it's I guess I, I guess I just like giving myself a challenge. Like rather because it can be very liberating, obviously, that the fact with writing literature literature, the possibilities are completely endless. You know, you just have a blank page in front of you. And it's not even like like with a film, you would have a, a budget or you might have certain, you know, I know that a lot of production companies are, are aware of even like censorship and stuff. Like you the there can be more like unhelpful restrictions when it comes to like making a film for instance but with with a piece of literature that's literally like no there is no no boundaries but then i almost like hearing posing just some little little elements that will just kind of almost force me to like think and work things out a bit a bit harder in a way i'm going to ask you what books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to yeah um was recently in um in America on honeymoon. Um so I've been diving into a lot more of the, the American literature that I'd read previously, really. And like discovering even discovering a lot more like nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties American poetry, which I'd never really read before. So a lot of like um reading like Charles Bukowski's post office. I have been working as a as a postal postal sorter as well while I've been writing money in typewriter so yeah Bukowski's post office kind of uh strikes a card definitely um reading a lot of Ginsburg again uh yeah I got this um it's like new American poetry 1945 to 1960 I should really talk to David Keenan about this I know he's like a real yeah a real he champion of Charles like Holland. Olson yeah yeah exactly yeah so Charles Olson's in there who I haven't, I've, I mean, I've maybe read like one or two poems of, of Olsen's, but he's he's in there. I almost want that. So that's like a big anthology of, um, yeah, American poetry. And it almost, it almost kind of, uh, it's like a bridge from like surrealism to the beat writers in a way, because during the Second World War, the surrealists, or quite a lot of the surrealists, moved over to America, to New York, to avoid you know, to, to evade Nazism. Um, and the Surrealists kind of became like an influence on American literature, especially in the in the East Coast. And so, yeah, that, that poetry book is like 1945 to 60. So it's kind of that, that period where these Surrealist elements almost turn into the kind of the more beat, beat literature that I love as well. So I'm looking forward to diving into that and I'm sure that'll be like a gateway to to new writers that I've not not discovered until now um I'm currently reading Ali Miller's memoirs which is called The Last Days yeah I've got it on my shelf oh you should read it yeah it's brilliant it's a story of her escape basically from the the restrictions of the, the Jehovah's Witnesses but it's just really beautiful it's like such like pure clean prose but again, with like beautiful flashes of, yeah, like there's humour and and definitely convulsive beauty. You know, there's these elements that almost really startle you with the the difficulties of living in that sort of like quite quite oppressive situation. You know, so I'm. And alongside that, I'm reading 
like Francis Bacon did a lot of interviews with David Sylvester in the 1960s. Um, you sort of get the sense, I mean, in a way, like reading Francis Bacon's interviews, it almost reminds me of when you read interviews with David Lynch in that he doesn't really want to give away anything in terms of the meaning of his paintings. But in these interviews, you feel like he's been as, as generous as possible. It's almost as if he feels about as comfortable as he can in, in David Sylvester's presence. And it's just really, yeah, just really, really brilliant, brilliant for, um, I mean, there's a lot of like talk of like gambling and like butcher's shops. There's something, there's just like a real sort of like sinister undertone to everything he's saying, basically. Like he's a brilliant, brilliant character. Um, and again, there's, there's always like a stack of books on surrealism that I want to read. I almost feel like when, when it comes to surrealism, it's always like the thicker and more detailed and weighty, the, the better. So there's a book on, uh, it's like Derek Sayers' book on Prague surrealism. And there's like a big, big biography on Magritte that I want to want to get. That's by like Alex Danchev. So I can't like I constantly go back to the surrealists. Really, that's like my main main fixation. So I've always got like a basically an ever ever increasing stack of surrealist books to to chomp in. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Richard Millwood. This week's episode is brought to you by my chat with the head of marketing over at Puffin. Here's a sneak peek. Could you tell us a bit more about the Roald Dahl controversy? Well, it's really quite simple. In this day and age, we need to be sensitive to the needs of our shareholders. Do you mean by embracing diversity and inclusion? Oh God, no. Fuck that woke nonsense. No, we just need to sell a fat fuck ton of books. Now you'll have to excuse me. This caviar won't you just serve. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Richard's Desert Island Books. This is a bit of a mix. I mean, again, it's, it's maybe not like my all-time favourite books, but definitely the ones that I would take with me if I was exiled on a, on a desert island. But it would def- I mean, again, I've mentioned them before, so Lolita and Pale Fire would definitely be there because, again, like the more I reread them, the more I seem to uncover in them. Uh, I would take, I mean, it's it's basically just a best of of Ginsberg, but it's called The Essential Ginsberg. And I picked that up recently. And it's, so it combines all his most like well-known poetry. And I really love like, like Howell and Kaddish, I really hold up as such brilliant pieces of literature. Um, but it's also got his like journal entries and letters it's got his photographs that he took in there as well. It's got um, yeah, essays in there. And so you just really get like such a brilliant sense of you, who Ginsburg was as a person. And I really love that he, I mean, it's just like what I love best about him is the way that he just really tried to sort of transcend reality, basically, or like just transcend the, the poverty that he was in at the time. Um, when he was, you know, beat as in like actually beat. Uh, yeah, it's just a brilliant, yeah, a brilliant sort of a combination of all his writing where he's just really like sort of exploring consciousness. Uh, and then, yeah, does everyone say Proust? Yeah, I think everyone says Proust, yeah. Yeah, I did, I got like 200 pages through Swan's way, and then for various reasons, just kind of got got whisked off reading another stream of different different books. But I did really love it, and I do intend to to dive back into it at some point. So obviously, your desert island would be the perfect place to do that. Again, like I would take, yeah, Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. I've got it in the in the flat, but it's just you just need to be ready to embark on something like that. I think, but. Mm. The time has to come soon, surely. And I think likewise as well, like I can, um, yeah, David Keenan's Monument Maker is the same. Yeah, I want to dive into that. I know you're a real champion of that book. I love what that I've book. read of it, I, I do 
It is incredible. I've seen him read from it as well. That's something I really want to immerse myself in soon. And then so many surrealist books. So it's difficult to choose one or two, but um, Mark Polizzotti's biography of Andre Breton is really incredible. Um, and I think like a good contrasting companion to that would be uh, Georges Bataille's Visions of Excess. It's an anthology of a lot of his essays, almost like his more sort of like enlightening and disgusting essays. I think they would be a nice sort of counterpoint. I do look, it almost seems like with surrealism, you feel like a lot of people are either in the Breton camp or they're in the Bataille camp because mm -hmm. they were just very, very like contrasting figures. But I, I feel like I've just definitely got a foot in, in each camp, basically. <laughs> like Bataille hated Breton because he was like an idealist and maybe like too sort of romantic, whatever. Um, and Bataille was just very like interested in everything that's repulsive. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I like I, I prefer you know I love the combination of the romantic and the repulsive basically. Mm -hmm. I think you get that quite a lot in my books as well. So, so yeah, that sort of makes sense to have both of those by my by my side. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Patrick Dewitt's The Sisters Brothers I really love. I think just as like just for pure pleasure, I think. Um, and then lastly, uh, a book I hold really dear to my heart is Michael Smith's The Gyro Playboy. It was uh, like Michael was the one of the first like other writers that I met when I was first accepted for publication from from Faber. He's from like a similar part of the world to me. He's from Hartlepool, which is just over the river from from Middlesbrough. Um, it's just really like such a beautiful book. It's almost like little vignettes. Uh, it's all it's basically like autobiographical, basically. Maybe slightly like Hunter S. Thompson, like where sort of fiction and reality is slightly blending together, but it's basically just his life at the very early start of the twenty first century. It just really captures um, captures the northeast really brilliantly, but also um, captures like Soho and Shoreditch perfectly at that moment where they were both beginning to, or it's almost at that point before they got really really viciously gentrified and sort of lost a lot of what made them so special. So in a way, like even though it's even though it's quite like a recent book, I think it came out in 2006, it does feel like a bit of a period piece in a way. Like or it's or it's just really sort of captures recent history really, really beautifully. So that yeah, that would be like a nice sort of quite a nice sentimental book to have by my side your desert island sounds nice. pretty good nice i'll keep, keep it'll keep me occupied anyway yeah cool well we should probably wrap it up before we do congratulations again on this book it is just magnificent i really loved it and i urge people to go out and read it because it is just something that will blow you away can you tell us where we can go and grab manning typewriter and the re-releases of your other books and also where we can catch up with you online yeah, well, uh, my, my website is just my name.com, so richardmillward.com. Um, I'm not on social media or anything, so that's that's your, your go-to place for all things Millward. Um, yeah, and in terms of getting the getting the book, I mean, it's, it's it should be available through all your normal channels, basically, online. Uh, it'll be in, in all the bookshops in, in Britain, certainly. But I think, yeah, if you go through, like, White Rabbit books, that's probably the best place to, to grab a copy, I think. Excellent. Well, once again, congratulations, and I highly recommend it. And thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate all the support, Ben. No, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks so much. Thanks once again to Richard Millwood. You can pick up Man-Eating Typewriter from White Rabbit Books. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon. Bye.